Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. If my voice sounds unfamiliar, that's because I'm not David Emmett. I am Jensen Bueller from Asphalt and Rubber. You can follow me at Asphalt underscore Rubber on Twitter. And with me today is Steve English, and you can follow me on Twitter at Steve English GP. All right, Stephen, I want to throw down the gauntlet for you because uh, I also happen to host the Two Enthusiast podcast. You can follow that at Two Enthusiast on Twitter. And we are crushing you guys on iTunes ratings. So I want to just kind of throw down the challenge for the Paddock Pass podcast listeners and say, hey, if you happen to be listening to the show on iTunes and you happen to like it, get your sorry asses up onto your computers, go find it on there and give us a little rating. If it's less than five stars, I'm personally going to come to your house and beat down your door. You don't want that. So you should give it a little clicky click. You should rate it. Leave us a comment. We're always trying to improve the show. It's uh, Paddock Pass Podcast on uh, iTunes. I believe it's on Stitcher. You can find us on the internets on Facebook at facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. You can find us on Twitter at paddockpasspod. And I know the boys will greatly appreciate uh, all the feedback you give them and all the messages you leave them on the social media. I know, I know Steven personally is really looking forward to the love letters that he, uh, gets every week from his female fans. It's a little weird. I think sometimes I think he gets more enjoyment from the male fans that send him love letters. I don't personally judge Steven. That's, that's your thing. Whatever you do, God bless you. I got no comment on that, JB. All right. Let's just talk about some <laughs> motorbikes then. We were just, um, up at the track the last couple days watching the world superbike boys go around and do some testing before they uh some of them head off to aragon and the others head down to uh, phillip island to start up the season it's good to be in a different paddock for a change i think you're gonna have to change your twitter handle though let's not do anything too drastic just yet Jim. yeah yeah ease into it ease into it uh i think is it safe to that we can announce your your new position uh, yeah i've moved to the world superbike paddock now to do the world feed commentating for dorna so i'm really excited to make that make that transition there as well i'm really excited to to yell at you at my tv in the living room on on the world feed as as the bikes go by so that's a win-win for everyone i think yeah no doubt you won't be the only person yelling at me <laughs> well um congratulations on the uh, new position i think uh, we're all really excited for you on the podcast for that cheers jim i think this week uh, in hereth was a, a good opportunity for both of us to actually see what we can expect this year in world Superbikes as well and through the the two days of the test it was really interesting just to see the differences between the bikes even just compared to when they were testing in december with the moto gp boys you could see a lot of differences just because track conditions were so different we didn't have the michelin rubber on the track so we were able to see a really big variance between what we saw in december and what we see now yeah i saw a few teams complaining about the grip being a lot less than it's had it's been in the past so um maybe that'll be good for them in development for for low tracks and situations but maybe not as indicative of what a race weekend would look like where there's a lot more rubber on the course yeah jonathan ray said it where you basically came here for the test in december you've come here now and it's two totally different tracks so it's actually quite beneficial for you to be able to learn how to set the bike up correctly and things like that like jonathan finished the test seventh and he said that uh, if the season was to start tomorrow obviously he wouldn't feel that he was seventh fastest but just being able to work through all your setting options and just understand how to make the kawasaki work around different grip conditions was quite useful for this week's test and i think it was the same for pretty much everyone at the test yeah i think that's a that's an important probably disclaimer for us to get up in front before we, we go further in is yeah, you can't read too much into the, the lap times in testing because testing is testing. They're trying different components. They're trying different swing arms. Consistency is probably a bigger uh, concern than outright lap times. Uh, I think some people look at the testing times and say, oh, yeah, okay. So Jonathan Ray is seventh today. Well, he's going to really struggle this season. It's not really the case because he's not probably out there trying to push for the fastest lap. He's trying to go back to the teams with the best data possible to help them push the development in the right direction. Yeah, a good test rider isn't necessarily a good rider that's good at going absolutely flat out. It's about being able to gather data. It's about being able to see what you need to do to get the bike into the best position. That's why sometimes you see some of the best riders in the world are terrible test riders just because they can ride around any issue with the bike and they just find a way to do the same lap time. 
Whereas if you're a writer that's capable of only getting to say 95, 97% of what those other guys are able to do at the absolute limit, you might be able to do that consistently and you're able to see exactly what way the bike should react and how it should change throughout a session and you're able to gain much more valuable data. Sure, sure. That actually reminds me. So I just came from the MV Augusta Brutale 800 launch down in Malaga um, and I got the chance to talk to them a little bit about the World Superbike Development. And it was interesting the the compliments that they're they're heaping onto Leon Camier as not only as a racer but also as a test rider because it what was the quote uh, he's like a human data acquisition system like he can tell you exactly what the bike was doing in every single turn and every single lap and sure enough you know they go and they look at the data and they're like yeah the the rear tire did slip in turn three on lap fourteen you know when he comes in after thirty laps and that's an impressive thing and that I think for them that's a, that's tremendously valuable with, with where their program is at. Yeah, I think if you were to look at someone like Leon, he's had experience in 125 GPs, he's raced 600s I think in the UK, he's a British Superbike champion, he's raced MotoGP, he's raced in World Superbikes for a few years, he's got a lot of experience there and just having that information in, in your own mind about how things should react, it means that you've got an awful lot of potential to be a very valuable test rider if you're able to translate what you feel into accurate feedback for some riders they struggle to do that but leon it's one thing that everyone has always said working through bsb and into world superbikes that it was one of his main strengths yeah yeah uh let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about the boys at the top of the timesheet uh, the kawasaki racing team so uh, tom sykes and jonathan ray uh, I didn't get to talk too much of them, but you, you had a chance to. So why don't you tell me what... Uh... Well, mostly mostly what Kawasaki were working on was just trying to get an understanding for how the new front forks are working. Olin's has brought a, a new package out for everyone. And I think everyone of the top teams have all tried to adjust to that and see how it works. And for Kawasaki, they also brought a new engine to the test. So they were just trying to get data to see how that compares to the old engine as well. So they're just basically ticking off a lot of boxes as we, we work through the winter. For Sykes, he set the fastest time of the week and that was using a qualifying tire. JR set the seventh fastest time, didn't use a qualifier. But out on track, JR looked very comfortable on the bike, even with some of his comments this week. I think one of the most interesting ones was where he said that uh, he could feel that the development of the ZX-10R has been pushed towards another riding style so clearly Tom Sykes riding style and JR felt that uh, this was you know a, a bit of an issue for him at the moment but when you went out stood trackside he looked very comfortable on the bike and to be honest whenever I heard the comments it was hard not to think there's a little bit of sandbagging going on there for for JR but you know Tom's always quick over one lap the issue for Tom is he has to prove he can be quick consistently over a 25 lap race and be able to match JR and that's where we're going to see whether or not Tom's really made a step this year like obviously he's a world champion knows how to ride a bike but it's very different whenever the, the guy on the other side of the box is also a world champion able to ride the bike and it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic works between them absolutely absolutely yeah that, that's always been tom's problem is you know, the first maybe two-thirds of the race he's quite strong and it's that last third where things really drop off and i don't know if that's just down to tire management or if that's something that needs to 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 really grow within him as a riding style but uh it, it's definitely um an interesting element between the team because they they did look so good on the course together yeah and i thought that uh even just comparing tom this week compared to the december test like obviously i've not been in the world superbike paddock too often over the course of the last few years i've been in the gp paddock but just to see the difference in his riding style compared to 2014 which was the last time i was in the paddock consistently and even just from the december test to this week's test he looked an awful lot more composed on the bike he looked an awful lot more comfortable and even just walking through the paddock he was laughing he was joking he was he looked so much more comfortable in, in his own skin and it'd be interesting to see if he can carry that forward to pi in the start of the season yeah absolutely I, it, it's always interesting for me watching racers if they've won a championship it, i think there's a lot more uh stress to defend the number one plate than it is to try to attain it so maybe there's something there with um jonathan uh winning the season last year where, where the burden isn't so much on tom now to 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 defend his position in the garage as it is now he's the challenger and that's you know, there's some value to being the underdog, perhaps, if you want to call him that. Yeah, I think um, when you've spent your entire life saying, I want to be a world champion, when you actually win the championship, being able to move on from that can be a challenge for riders and being able to to grow 
into the role of being a world champion whenever it's what you've searched for so long can be a challenge and finding ways just to motivate yourself is important that's why maybe some of JR's comments this week they're there just to try and really G himself up and then you can see it from Tom as well he's you know he's been a top world superbike rider for the last four years he's consistently been a championship contender he's won the championship he's finished second twice finished third last year and I think he's out to prove just exactly how good he can be as well this year so it's going to be it's going to be challenging for Kawasaki I think to to deal with the two boys they're in all likelihood they're going to be going head to head for the championship again and just seeing the dynamic is going to be it's definitely going to be something to keep an eye on through the year. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, that's a good problem to have if you're a team manager. It, it depends. You know, you, you hear a lot of teams saying like such and such is a good number two. Even in, in MotoGP, it's, you hear it the whole time in the paddock where Danny Pedrosa is the perfect man to be teammates with Mark Marquez because Danny's fast enough to win any Grand Prix. He'll always score three, four wins a season, loads of podiums. But you've also got Mark that's going to consistently win races and things like that. Danny could easily win a world championship, but by virtue of the fact that he hasn't done it yet, he's just sits into that role as a number two perfectly because if Mark has an off day, Danny can easily win. And it just depends on what a team is actually looking for. Having two number ones in a team is is a big challenge. It certainly is from from a personnel point of view or from an ego point of view. And we've, we've definitely seen some fireworks between... Uh, Johnny Ray and Tom Sykes in the past and I, I think we can look forward to a little bit more fireworks in the 2016 season as well yeah there's definitely a bit of needle between the two boys and that's what that's what you need you know you look at world superbikes and it's it's hugely competitive but there needs to be a bit more needle between the two teams and that's why even bringing in someone like Josh Brooks is quite useful into the championship because if there's one thing that's been proven time and again in BSB it's that Josh is never afraid to say what he thinks he's never afraid to to be uh, to be seen as the the bad boy of the championship and be seen as the guy that's just saying what we all think and having him in world superbikes could be could be great for this year you know and he looked he looked quite quite comfortable this week as well timesheet doesn't really show it but there was two days of testing half days lost through bad weather at the start of the days Josh lost half a day with a few technical problems and just betting in a new bike but he was still relatively quick finished off in the top 10 I think he was probably about two seconds off the pace but he didn't use a qualifying tire as well so you can take in you know quite a bit of time from that as well so he looks like he could be he could be able to find something this year as well to to mix it up at the front one last thing i want to talk about with the kawasaki's and then maybe we can move on obviously the kawasaki's brought a new or i should say an updated version of the zx10r for their uh, 2016 um i know from the, the the production side those kind of developments probably started three years ago and some of them could happen a little bit later that are that are more uh, fine-tuning but you know it usually takes about three to five years to bring a bike to market so it's interesting to hear jonathan's comments about this bike has been developed more towards another person's style than another person being tom sykes of course but you know the reality is you know maybe this bike wasn't even being or this bike was being developed before jonathan was even a part of the team yet and that's part of the symptom as well rather than kawasaki favoring one one rider over another uh, I don't know if you've heard anything on, on the development schedule for the race bike versus the production bike. No, I wouldn't have heard anything about that, but it makes sense. You know, I think that the one thing that um, you can make an immediate change on on bike development is electronics. And just by Tom having been with the team for so long, having developed the bike in the past, maybe they went with his direction on electronic strategies or whatever at the moment. But it's just it's up to JR just to, to get that back onto his onto his plane at the end of the day last year's bike was de- was developed around tom as well and jr did quite well in it so uh i doubt there's going to be too much of an issue once we get to pi and definitely not by the time we get back to europe he'll be on top of things no yeah I've, this is one thing he's proven in the last season is he's capable of of overcoming whatever developmental differences there is between the two sides of the garages uh, let's move along to to the ruby ducati team um chaz davies and davide giuliano uh, we, we had a good talk with with chaz he was looking really good on the track and by really good i mean he was sideways everywhere it seemed like especially the hairpin turns where the the braking sounds quite more uh, pronounced uh looked like good fun but he was actually complaining about it a bit because of the engine braking control and things like that yeah chaz said that there was some issues with the electronics and that's why he was backing it in so much but i tell you what jay whenever we were standing down at uh, turn one and turn six we were thinking you know it's pretty cool seeing him backing in like that and uh, he looked uh, he looked really comfortable on the bike he looked like he uh he's already 
mid-season comfort level in that bike and that's what comes from just having the same package underneath you from last year and that's something that Chaz never really had before in his career he's now on the same bike for three years in a row he's got the same team around him same mechanics same engineers and just having that comfort level makes a big difference for him and he, and he really looks like he's grown into the role of Ducati's team leader yeah yeah he seemed really comfortable when we were talking to him I think he's ready to start racing uh, tomorrow if he could have the option yeah, I think uh, you know they're they're going to miss the Aragon test next week, but I think they got two days of PI, then the race weekend, and I, they'll be fine once the season starts. And I think Chaz had two podiums there last year, so he'll be uh, he'll be keen to have a similar start to the season there next year, and just hope that uh, he goes to Thailand and he doesn't have the same kind of problems as he had last year. He had two crashes there, so right, right, yeah. I remember him saying when uh, they go down to to Phillip Island that there's not too much testing they're actually doing. They're going to be working on setup for the race, so you can. I think that's a good barometer on what that package is uh, right now because it sounds like it's it's good to go and uh, he's ready to get get some laps uh, under race conditions now. Yeah, they're definitely at that that point with the bike development where they're in the mature end of the cycle. Whereas you've got other teams that will have a new bike and they're obviously just at the the early stages of their learning curve. The Ducati just is it's a stable platform and they know exactly what they have to do with it. I think halfway through last season they found a really good base setting. And they've just been able to use that pretty much everywhere since then. And that's what gives you the confidence to know you can turn up at any track and still be competitive. There isn't really any glaring weaknesses in that bike now. They've got the weight distribution sorted. They've got, as I said, the base setting sorted. They've got decent power and they've got a really good front end. Like Chaz under heavy braking looked really confident, really comfortable. And he's going to be strong this year. Yeah, I think uh, to see him backing in like that, you have to have some front end confidence. And it was there in spades. I know... um Back in Bologna, there's a big push to get some results in World Superbike this year, and it looks like uh, uh, they have they have uh, everything kind of lining up for them. What do you fancy their chances are for the season? I think uh, you're going to have to back Kawasaki to be title favourites, but if you were a betting man, putting money on Chaz isn't a, isn't a bad isn't a bad option. He's going to be strong all year. They're going to be reliable. They're going to have a package that that should allow him to be competitive everywhere. And I think I think they've got the potential to get back into title winning form. The one thing that's going to be interesting is to see how Giuliano does. This week in in Heret, he spent a lot of time working on race simulation, working on old tires. And from what the team have said, it's worked out quite well. He seems to have made a bit of a step forward in, in learning and understanding how to get more out of the, the bike over a race distance. But standing trackside, he still looks so aggressive on the bike. He, he still looks just like Giuliano has always looked. And for me, until he calms down that riding style, it's going to be very difficult to actually win races because you just go through your tyre. And it's very it's very difficult whenever you're on that ragged edge all the time to avoid making a mistake and be hit hit all your braking markers, hit all your turn in points, hit all your apexes, hit your exits on a consistent basis. It's just it's a massive challenge. And that's where if you look at the difference side by side between him and Chaz, Chaz is still an aggressive looking rider, but he's also an awful lot more control looking rider. And I think that's where Giuliano needs to make the step. But his speed's never in doubt. He's he's ultra fast over one lap. It's just a case of being able to to tame that and, and get him to be able to to be consistent over a 40 minute race yeah i've always been real mercurial with 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 davide because there's there's some points there where you see real flashes of genius you see him there's there's a real good talent in there and then on the other side of it there's this kind of um oh i don't want to say maturity but there's like an, an italian exuberance that he has where he, he he goes beyond he goes too far uh, past the limit of of what uh, a smart rider would do a thinking rider would do and i think there's just that that next step in his riding style or in his rider development that needs to be achieved where he can maybe find that that balance point where his brilliance will show through as a rider because he's extremely, extremely talented. And when he's when he's on it and he has his day, he's he's excellent on the track. But I think he's always held back by that that thing of where he's just on the razor's edge of going down. And then unfortunately for him, it, it catches him out more times than often. And then he gets injured and then you're out and then you lose that edge and you have to build it back up. You know, the same process that every racer has to deal with when they when they get, um, as Casey Stoner would say, where their uh, ambition ex- exceeds their talent. Uh, I think for Giuliano, yeah, that that's definitely what he's going to need to do this year. But I think for for a lot of riders, the issue can be almost that they're too talented. You know, I've talked to a lot of crew chiefs, and they've said that a lot of the time they work with riders and 
they don't really un- understand how a motorbike actually works because everything's so natural for them. And when you've come through national championships, European championships, junior championships, and you've been able to win consistently, you didn't need to really understand everything fully. Whereas you'll have some other riders that maybe would have been on lesser machinery and they had to learn how to maximize everything for them. And they just learn to understand how the bike works, what set and changes actually make a big difference. And they learn to adapt their riding style. Whereas you get some riders that are just so naturally talented that it's a, it's a big issue to, to really rein in that talent and not rely on it and instead try and outthink your rivals. I think Tito Rabat's a really good example. Tito Rabat was never seen as being a complete rider. He was never seen as being a potential Grand Prix winner. He was never seen as being a potential world champion. And then he went to, he went to Almeria and he just spent day, 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 just working out on the, on the Moto2 bike, understanding how it works, understanding how he needs to change his style. And just from the 10,000 hours of practice th- um, theory, he was able to really change his, change his standing in the paddock, win a championship, and now he's moved into MotoGP. And when you talk to the guys that are going to be working with him now next year at VDS for the few tests that he's already had, they've all been hugely impressed by just how quickly he could adapt to the MotoGP bike and how quickly he could understand what he needs to do on the bike. And just having that um, adaptability is what's what's key for Tito. And we could see it that through this season, he could really impress people. Yeah, I'm always reminded in these situations of... Um Pete Sampras, I don't know if you follow tennis at all. Hi. Yeah, you, you look like the country cup sort. Everyone should know that Steve's been hitting the golf course pretty hard this week too. I'm not even a bit embarrassed by that, Jay. I got my first hole-in-one this week. It was all good. There's a joke there. I'm going to let, uh, let it sit. Yeah, good man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it always reminds me of, of, of Pete Sampras because I, I don't follow tennis very closely, but um, the story always struck me because when he was com- when Pete Sampras was coming through the, the professional tennis circuit, and he, he was becoming a good tennis player. He was a top 10 tennis player and he was looking to make that next step. And, uh, he, he was fortunate enough to have a coach that looked at him and said, you know what people what's holding you back is you, you do a two handed backhand. You need to, you know, you need to start doing a one handed backhand. And Pete's like, well, you know, no offense, but top 10 tennis player with a two handed backhand, I think I'm doing it. Okay. I'm doing a lot better than these other guys doing a, you know, a single handed backhand. But, uh, eventually it was, it was, it was, you know, he agreed and he, he, he changed his stroke fell down the rankings massively and and it was at that point of like almost just i need to give up on this idea that like what have i you know what huge mistake I've, I've done but it started to come together for him and it started he started rising back up through the pro tennis rankings and then obviously went on to become such a, a huge dominant player in professional tennis for for a decade almost um so there's that idea of sometimes you need to to step back and, and reevaluate what you're doing and need to be more of a thinking man in your sport than, than just relying on that raw talent because he had so much raw talent that he was able to to achieve so much even with a two-handed backhand. But to take that next step, it had to rely on more than just talent. He had to rely on you know, perfecting his game, perfecting his stroke, perfecting his craft. And I, I, I see the same thing with, with several riders in the paddock where it's just immensely, immensely talented riders. Just, But the, the, there's just certain limitations. You can only get so far on talent and you have to sit back and, and, and be a little bit more smart about how you approach things and, and be a little bit more crafty and, 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 and pick your moment and pick your time. Yeah, and if you look at uh, Rossi and Marquez and Lorenzo, they're the hardest working guys you'll, you'll meet. Rossi's consistently out in the ranch. He's consistently riding bikes. He changed his riding style. He just learned what he needed to do to be able to win. Marquez, every day you see him out riding his motocross bike on Twitter. You see him just consistently just trying to to find a way to to find that extra little bit on the bike. Lorenzo, whenever he was a kid, it, it, the stories are, are renowned for how much work he put in to just being a, a motorbike racer. And that's what it takes. Those guys have, have married talent with dedication and intelligence. And it's definitely they're the three things you need. You look at any top rider, it's very rare that they're there just solely on, on sheer talent. Yeah. It may, actually, hearing you talk, it, may, it makes me kind of realize that when you look at the aliens and what uh, the aliens in MotoGP and, and what defines them from, from just the other good riders in the paddock, it's, it's that plasticity of, of their craft. They're, they're so much more adaptable. They, they're so much more willing to change the thing that has been working for them for so long. Rossi changing his style to be 
more of that Moto2 style, getting that elbow down. Um, you look at Casey, who had to adapt to just wildly different bikes, and and, and Mark Marquez is constantly pushing forward what we define as the the the, the perfect style uh, in GP racing. Even Lorenzo had to overcome the the heat treatment on the tires and how to find uh, how he could get back to uh, a way of riding that played into his strengths as a rider. And, and I don't think you see that in in all the riders in the classes. I think some of them get stuck in their way. I'm going to ride the bike like this. And if the bike doesn't work like this, well, then the bike is you know, a piece of crap. And, and, you know, it's the team's fault for not giving me the bike that I need. And it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I think if you were to look at just taking on what you're saying about the aliens, the next rider we were going to talk about was Nicky Hayden, a world champion, really good rider. He has had a long career in GPs. He's moving to world Superbikes now. Nicky was in that second tier of riders where if everything went his way he could win a championship and he took his chance and he won it and now he moves into world superbikes and you can see how quickly he's adapting to that bike but it's that difference between the very good and 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 the great you know and the great guys don't need everything to go their way to win they need nine things out of ten to go their way eight things out of ten that next tier of riders which are still great riders need 10 things to go their way out of 10 to be able to win a championship to be able to win consistently and I think it's that difference between those top four guys and the rest of the field is just consistently being able to to win and get the most out of their package yeah yeah I remember talking to Kevin Schwantz and he said the exact same thing you know he could go through Friday practice Saturday qualifying and the bike could just be you know a hunk of shit but um you know, he'd always find a way on Sunday, always find a way to get around it, to ride around it, to push harder, to, to, to make up the difference. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's, he's a MotoGP legend. He's, he's Kevin Schwantz. That's what, that's who he is. But that's what defined him against, you know, a paddock full of other very talented riders. And that's why uh, we talk about him still to this day. Cause he, he had that special, whatever it is that, um, and there's probably only a handful of people in the world that can really, spotted in a rider you know we can we can kind of look at it um objectively as journalists i think like you can see it in the results and things like that but i think it's a rare breed of people that can look at a rider just going around the track without seeing the timesheet without knowing what's going on and, and and spot that and uh uh it's it's impressive it's certainly impressive but i want to get back to nikki because obviously for for me as an american running a, an american-based publication this is a big deal for for us to have finally a uh a rider in World Superbike that American fans can follow, get excited about. Obviously, Nikki has a huge following, not only in the U.S. but in the world, uh, in the world at large. Um, massive, massive fans in Europe and Asia, and probably I mean, pick pick a continent. He's probably got fans in Antarctica as well, for all we know. Um, so it's great to see him out in the paddock. Obviously, though, he's got a he's got a tough year ahead of him, doesn't he? Yeah, the Honda it's long in the tooth, but that's a good thing for Nicky as well to an extent because he can come in, he can fly under the radar. If Nicky gets podiums, if Nicky let's say wins a race, he's an absolute hero because he's doing something that is very difficult to do on that bike. If he comes in and he's on a Kawasaki and he's having podiums, he's not he's not doing a great job. You know, he's able to come into World Superbikes now with Honda, learn the paddock, learn the tracks, learn the bikes learn what the other riders are like and then in 2017 when the new blade, when the new fireblade comes out then he's able to go for the championship and I, I think that this week was another example of just seeing how he's adapting to the paddock we had two hours lost each morning because of fog because of a damp track and Nicky was itching to get out and he wasn't he wasn't able to get out you know the team were holding him back and saying no we just need to work through our program and we need to do this and we need to do that and Nicky wanted to get out on track he wanted to just get as much experience as he could and he got out and he had some technical problems he ran out of fuel on on a race simulation he had a crash so he lost probably half a day three quarters of a day of a two-day test and that's a that's a big loss for him but he looked good on the bike he was able to understand the, the how the qualifying tires work it's the first time he's used them since uh, probably 2008 and, you know, just being able to see the difference that it, it makes whenever you jump onto a quality tire is going to be uh, is going to be important for him when we get down to Phillip Island. And to be honest, you could turn up in Phillip Island, you're going to have a pack of, pack of riders at the front. You always see surprising results. Eugene Laverty won on the Suzuki 
in 2014. So Nicky could uh, could contend in PI. I don't think he's going to contend through the season. I think it's going to be too big of an ask. But uh, you know, he he came in this week. He was six tenths off the pace. He was faster than Vandermark again, and we all know how good Michael is. And you know, it was a positive test for him. Yeah, I think there's a lot of positives um, for fans. I don't know if, if Nicky necessarily looks at it as a positive because you can kind of, when we were talking to him, you can kind of feel, not the tension, but he, he's ready to, to get in there and kick ass and take names. He's ready to to, to go out there and, and and do a championship level result. And I think it's, I think like you said, it's too much of an ask this year. He's got a two-year contract with Honda. I think this year is definitely development year. They don't have quite the funding that they were looking for. So they're on kind of a, a reduced program than I think they originally thought. And yeah, the, the CBR is uh, so long in the tooth now. They, they need a new package. I, I don't think there's a greater example of, of where that bike is versus the rest of the paddock than Jonathan Ray's results on it. Um, two years ago versus, you know, last year being on the Kawasaki, you know, it was just like a, like a light switch for him. So, you know, Nikki's, Nikki's basically getting on that kind of, that same bike. Um, cause it's so far along in its development. Honda's not really making a ton of, of, of changes for him. But uh, what was interesting to me to see was one, he's hungry to get out there and get some wins. And two, there's still a lot for them to achieve as a team and for him to bring as a rider, uh, an extra level of, I wasn't going to say professionalism, but he's bringing something else into the team that hasn't been there before. And, and maybe it's just hunger. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. I think that bodes really well. Yeah, I think the main thing that Nick is bringing is intensity. Yeah. You know, and I remember when he came off the bike for the first time at Hareth and the test before Christmas, he came back into the box and he, he was going through, you know, the, the initial debrief with everyone. And he was saying, this is what the bike's doing, you know, through this corner. This is how it's different to what I'm expecting. This is how the electronics are working. And he, he was ready to go straight back out on the track. And somebody was, you know, they were hanging around to put the tires in or something. And, and Nicky was, you know, he, he, he said afterwards that, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty intense guy and I want, I want to be, if I've got eight hours of running, I want to be able to do eight hours of running. And I think that's where the difference was for Tenkadi. But they're going to adapt to that. You know, you, you adapt to the requirements of the rider. And at the, end of the, at the end of the day, Nicky's a world champion. And if you can't respect the title that he's won, you're in the wrong game and that's where the team will adapt to what he wants you know what you're going to get with Nick you're going to get a guy that gives 100% you're going to get good feedback you're going to get a guy that's committed to to making your team successful and that's what Tenkade signed up for with him yeah if I can go for the hat trick on other sport references it reminds me of like uh, the Buffalo Bills of Jim Kelly with that hurry up offense no huddle offense and I think Nicky's like that like, like Tenkade is a fantastic team they're based out of Holland I don't think there's anyone questioning what what they can do as a team off a race bike. Nicky's like Jim Kelly, where he's just bringing that extra intensity. He's going to bring that that no huddling, like, guys, let's get going. Let's get going. Why are we sticking around? And I think I just see it getting making them as a team even better. Uh, so that excites me. And, and I just want to bring up one more thing when you said about Philip Island. Like, it, it is interesting, that track. Always the, the first one of the season seems to throw out a, a bit of a red herring result for, for World Superbikes and, and MotoGP too sometimes. So, you know, I think that could help um, if Nikki gets a good result there. That could help kind of galvanize the American fans into World Superbike as well this season, which is, I think, only a, a good thing all the way around. So I'm looking forward to see what can happen there uh, uh, down in Australia. Yeah, I think having a guy like Nikki join the championship really does build the championship as well. It means that the American market is a valid market again. When, when, we, were, when we were younger, JB, like you would have gone to Laguna in 02. 2000 those those early years of this this millennium were really world superbikes was massive business like i remember i was i was in california in 2000 and we happened to be up in monterey the same weekend as the world superbikes and i, I thought we'd just be able to just turn up and buy a ticket and go in like i was 15 at the time i didn't really know any better i thought like sure it's only a bike race and the, the crowd was massive and there was no tickets you know it was it was big business and i think that's what we can get back to at Laguna at different tracks just because Nicky's a big draw. He he was one of the most popular riders in MotoGP and I think worldwide fans are going to gravitate towards seeing how he does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he's a draw on his own. He's uh for the worldwide, I think he's a draw for the Americans, absolutely. Uh I know just just from my point of view as an editor for for an American-based publication, it's a huge reason for us to come in and and cover World Superbike more this season. Um and, and it's something we've always wanted to do, but now it makes more sense for, as far as like 
work versus reward. And I, I really do hope that that Superbike can get back to where it was in the past. Like, yeah, exactly when you said, like 2001-ish is when I started kind of getting into motorbike racing. And I remember living in Southern California and people talking about like, every year we make the pilgrimage to Laguna Seca and we bask in the glory that is, you know, Superbike racing. You know, it's not, it's not there anymore. Um, we're seeing kind of attendance come back at Laguna Seca. Last year was a very good year for motorcycle racing. Uh, every MotoGP round had more, about 10% more fans. Um, I think uh, we had 13% growth. Don't quote me on that number, but I think it was 13% growth at Laguna Seca for Superbike. So things are going in the right direction. But I'm really hoping that Nikki can can light a fire. And, and there's always that criticism that Superbike maybe is too Eurocentric. Well, maybe now this is kind of something that can help balance that out. We'll bring more fans from the U.S. We'll bring more fans from outside of Europe because of Nikki's fan base. And maybe we can get some other riders in that will help that as well. I'm not going to put it all on Nikki's shoulders. But I think it bodes very well for, for the season or for the series' health uh, in the coming future. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, it was interesting listening to Nikki talk about the electronics package on the CBR versus the the open platform Honda. Yeah, like uh, the first thing Nicky said was the electronics were an awful lot better on the superbike, and it's it's at the end of the day everyone knows that the open electronics from last year on the Honda were terrible. I think when Jack Miller got a, a run out on the the factory electronics at the Valencia test, he was there. Shit, like these these electronics. Like now I can understand what the difference was. And I think for Nicky jumping from the open bike onto this bike, he's able to see just how much more control he's able to get from the electronics and how much more sophisticated they are. Because I think for a lot of people, they don't really understand the level of electronics in on, on a World Superbike. When Eugene Laverty moved from Worlds to Grand Prix, the first thing he said was that um, the electronics package just didn't match what he was getting in a World Superbike. And that was on a Suzuki, it was on an Aprilia, it was on probably even maybe not so far back as the Yamaha that he, he was using in 2011 I think it was but he was able to say that look the level of electronics in world superbikes is very high we're able to do so much with that package and he wanted to translate that onto a Grand Prix bike and it took a long time from to actually be able to do that I think Nicky's found the opposite now where suddenly he's able to do an awful lot more with the electronics and like at the end of the day, the more options you have with the electronics for a rider, the more freedom they have to think in terms of, I wanted to do such and such in second gear, but I wanted to react differently whenever I'm in fifth gear. I wanted to work differently whenever I'm, you know, different lean angles that you're able to tailor made your software package for individual corners. And I think that's one, one area where Nicky's probably going to be really strong this year because in the electronics era of MotoGP on the end of the 990s onto the early 800s on, on the Honda and the Ducati he was always seen as being really good at how he was adapting the electronics towards what he needed to do yeah yeah it was interesting talking to the uh, Milwaukee BMW guys and just seeing the the difference between Josh Brooks and Carol Abrahams is you know Josh is used to not having really any electronics and you know focusing on wanting the uh, or focusing his setup more on the mechanical side, whereas Carroll comes from MotoGP, which is obviously so electronics heavy that he's approaching, you know, similar problems, but from an electronic point of view. And there's, there's definitely a disparity of, of, um, of that between the two series. And, and, and then when you look at GP, there's a disparity of that between the factory bikes, the satellite bikes, the open bikes, the CRT bikes, you know, through all those different generations yeah well at least for gp they'll be able to adapt that now where it should be a much more uniform package but for the milwaukee boys it was really interesting just to listen to how they were how they were both operating for carol i think the most uh, the most surprising thing for me was whenever we talked to him after the first day and he said you know i had a really good debrief with the guys you know i didn't really do that too much with my old team yeah and you're thinking you know that that's what the issue is with some some teams within the grand prix paddock they want to go racing but you need to put in the hard yards, you need to put in the effort. And I think moving to the Milwaukee team, they're coming there with a British Superbike Championship to their name. They're coming there with Josh Brooks, the reigning champion in BSB. They're coming there having been successful for years and years and years with their process. And they're, they're going to bring the same process to, to World Superbikes. And that's, I think, is going to help a rider like Carroll really fulfill his potential. We don't know how good... How, how much potential Carroll has. He's a Grand Prix race winner, but 
he never really showed what he could do on the MotoGP field. In his work a year, he did well on the Ducati, but then after that, it was a struggle. So I think moving in there, he'll be able to, to learn from a teammate for the first time in his career. And Josh is one of the most driven guys you'll, you'll meet. And I think being able to see how he operates will be, be a big thing for Carol. And I think Josh will start the year stronger, but Carol could uh, close that gap and, and be quite competitive. But this week in the test, I thought Josh looked, he looked really, he looked really focused on just uh, getting the most he could out of this test. They've got the Aragon test. They've got two days of PI and they're just looking to go through the process, get as much info as they can before the start of the season. And it was interesting when we, when we were talking to him, it was pretty clear that uh, managing expectations was the, the key thing. And I think it was something that was, was perfectly clear with the amount of times that he said, you know, if we're finishing six, seven, eighth, that's a good day. You know, we're not going to win races right from the start. It'd be unrealistic to say we're going to finish on the podium in every race. You know, that the, that's the goal. But actually, race by race, we just need to consistently improve, finish races and just get the most we can. Yeah, yeah. I've got a few things on that. I mean, one, I was really excited when I heard the announcement that um, SMR was going to come up from BSB into into the World Superbike. Um, probably not the best known team in the U.S., but um, you know, if anyone that's followed the road racing at uh, the TT and, and the Irish road racing, anyone that's followed BSB, like the Milwaukee uh, was Milwaukee Yamaha for most of it, they know the team. It's a known entity. They've always had top class riders. They've always been a top class team. Josh Brooks obviously won the championship last year uh, in Britain on the on the Yamaha and. You know, you know, he's no joke as a rider. And, and I think, um, you know, talking to everyone involved there, they, I think they're still trying to know what they don't know, still understand the BMW. It's a whole new platform for them. It's a platform that's been really well developed, uh, by BMW Motorrad and, and their racing department, but it's a new platform for them as a racing side of, and they've got a lot of chassis development that they have to do to, to get up to speed and a lot of electronics, uh, stuff to, to sift through because the, the BMW electronics package is, is very robust. Um, so, you know, I don't know if I expect great things from them in the first half of the season, but I, I feel like the second half of the season, we could really see them step it up as they kind of figure their things out. And that really excites me because I feel like there's a, there's a quality BMW team in the, in the paddock. And then there's, there's Altia as well that's going to be on the BMW, who's, uh, you know, a very good team as well. So, you know, it, it just excites me to see more and more of these kind of top shelf teams and you're on different equipment, which is one of the things I always love about Superbike where you have, you know, maybe four or five, uh, different OEMs in the, in the top five each, each race. And that's, that's great racing in my opinion. So I look forward to that. And then it was interesting talking to Carol too, because I think he's such an underrated rider. And I think, uh, people are quick to dismiss him because his father runs, uh, the MotoGP team. He owns the Bruno track and, you know, he's, he's, um, I think given a, a, a tough cross to bear as being like, you know, the, the, the spoiled kid in the paddock and because he doesn't, he's not a spoiled kid when you talk to him, he's very down to earth. He's very approachable and he's, he's pretty switched on too. You know, he's got a bachelor's in, in law. You can go be a lawyer after this when he's all sending of his racing career. But, um, I think, I think we're going to see a lot of, of potential out of Carol over the next year or two. Uh, and I think it's good to have someone like Josh in the, in the garage with him too. Cause I think that's, I think Carol can feed off that energy from Josh cause Josh has got a lot of energy and, uh, I think it's a, it's a good dynamic for both of them, and we'll see how they both progress as they get to know the package more. Yeah, like this was the first time that Carol ever sat on a superbike, and yeah, sure he's been on a MotoGP bike, but it's a different package. It's different bike. It's different weight. It's different electronics. It's the first time he's been on a bike since Aragon as well, and this was he said the first time he felt mostly fit since he broke his his leg he broke his ankle in uh, Catalonia in June so this was a big test for him just to be able to actually get back on the bike and just start his his rehab because you know you do a little bit of motocross you do a little bit of supermoto and and it's enough to sort of get your eye back in but he, he had no bike fitness at all going into this week and the the more time he gets on the bike the quicker it'll get you know he was eight tenths off of what Josh did this week in the test and that that's fair enough i think um it's it it it's just a case of being able to learn the bike learn the team and just learn their practices i think carol could be quite competitive this year at times he's 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 not going to again just like what josh said he's not going to win races but i think he could be he could be up there to have some strong results and surprise some people at the end of the day in um in Moto2 he won a Grand Prix he came up into MotoGP no, no in easy feat whatsoever in that yeah 
like that was in 2010 whenever yeah there was an awful lot of different bikes out there and the competitive structure of the championship varied from one race to the next but you still had to get the job done and when you talk to Carol, you know he, he knows how big a deal it is to win a Grand Prix there's a lot of guys in that paddock that have apparently have more talent than him but they don't have a Grand Prix win to their resume and I think that's important for for a rider and he can go into World Superbikes and see what he can do Jordi Torres came in last year as a again as a Moto2 race winner and he won a race at the end of the last year and he really he, he built a much bigger reputation for himself than if he had moved into MotoGP and raced at the back of the field I think that's that's a great example because uh, I mean I didn't know who Jordi Torres was until last year immensely immensely impressed me and I think that's that's one of the things that um is maybe the detriment of the GP paddock because it's it's such a pointy end and there's there's so many have nots versus haves when it comes to what packages riders have and things like that that it, it can be hard to see some of the talent that's that's hidden on a uh, a subpar team or some subpar package or subpar bike or just you know the 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 geography of it the the politics of the game uh, can can get in the way of it and then. Um, to see someone like Jordy come through, and it's like, where has this guy been hiding? You know, he, you know, he's exciting as a, as a writer, as, as a personality, but he's, a, he's also exciting on the track as well. And I think Carol has that same opportunity, uh, this year as, uh, like Jordy did, because I think, I think he's drastically underrated. And I think this is the, his opportunity to show people whether or not that, uh, that rating's correct or not. And, and, you know, I think, both he and Josh are going to have a bit of a ramp up to get, to get to that pointy end. But I think we're going to see some pretty quick improvements. Like, like Carol was saying, like just getting out there, just, just to understand the bike. It's it's like the first dance with your date. Like you're not quite sure if you're going to take her home afterwards. You're just, you're just kind of feeling her out right now. And, um, that, that's kind of how I see Carol with the BMW. It's just, we're just taking a lap around and getting to know each other, have a little conversation, a little cup of tea, maybe later off, you know, we'll, we'll call and we'll go to dinner, dinner and a movie. We'll, we'll see. Maybe in Australia, we, uh, we go around the, the track a little bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think um, going back to the, um, the experience of getting GPs and rider talent and things like that, a friend of mine was over for this week and he was really impressed looking at Chaz on track and he was thinking that, uh, you know, wow, Davies is really talented. And you're there. There's a reason he went over to Grand Prix when he was 15. There's a reason he went to Spain when he was 14. The talent's there for all these guys. It's just about being able to to let it shine. Chaz had terrible bikes for years in GP, and the opportunity to stay in the GP paddock dried up. He had to go race in America. He won Daytona 200, and then he uh, he got his chance to come back to Europe, won a World Supersport title, and now he's been able to show what he can do on the World Championship as well. And I think that it's just having that opportunity. And not not every rider gets it, but at least in superbikes, it looks like there's a bit more parity. And yeah, it comes down to the team. It comes down to how you interact with them. But just there's there's more opportunity there for a rider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Carol said it himself. You know, there's there's a couple instances in, in the Grand Prix product where um, you know things have gone a little differently. If people had valued him differently, or or if politics or nationality hadn't been as big of a factor. Or he would have the chance to have some opportunities that didn't present themselves to him, uh, in, in reality. And, you know, and that, and that's racing and that's life and that's the universe and everything. So, you know, you, you can't cry a river over it, but it is interesting to see that, you know, had things gone a little differently, maybe we'd be having a different conversation about him right now. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that for, for most writers, you could, you could say the same. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and every, every writer's got a, a sob story or whatever. And it is just, it's your career and it's how, you're going to adapt now. This is this is his opportunity to to show what he's learned in the best part of ten years racing Grand Prix level, and now he can come into into a championship where he's up against a really good rider as his teammate and Josh. And now it's up to him to prove it. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make excuses for him. I think I think in the end those things kind of wash themselves out because you can say it about everyone. A duty given to everyone's a duty given to no one. Um, but it is interesting. It is, it's of note. Let's put it that oh, way. Oh, definitely. Uh, I want to loop back just real quick. What do you fancy for Michael Vandermark this season? I think no one, no one's going to doubt Vandermark's talent. He's he's really quick. You know, we saw it last year. He had podiums on the CBR. We saw him win Suzuka twice. I really like the Vandermark story because up until a couple of years ago, he was still a truck driver. He was still working for the family firm. And it was really good to see a kid like that that's, you know, 
you hear an awful lot of silver spoon stories, but you don't hear an awful lot of stories about kids that are really working hard and earning their money to go racing. And I think it's the same with Vandermark. It's the same with um, Alex Lowe's. Like Al was um, an electrician until he was 20 or 21 or something like that. And he was just working with Sam and his dad. And, you know, they, they had to, they had to, they had to prove that they, that they, you know, they, they did their homework that, so that they could go ride their motocross bike. They had to earn their money to pay for their rides. They had to, they had to do all these things. And that's where, if you look at them, there's a bit, there's, there's a drive there. If you're a team boss, you know that you're going to get a hundred percent because they've always given a hundred percent. If you're a kid that's sort of been given factory machinery and different things like that, it's, you know, that's what you expect. And I think, uh, don't get me wrong. If you're given the factory machinery, you got to win with it, but having guys like Vandermark, Lowe's, just having to work their way up. I think that there's, there's an awful lot that comes from that. Exactly. If you're, if you're on the, the corner of the street selling candy bars to, to be able to buy race tires, there's a hunger in you to, to make sure you maximize every single one of them that I think, uh, other riders maybe won't have. Whether that translates into success or not, that's going to depend on the rider and that's going to depend on their determination and their talent. But, it's always it always is an interesting story and it's an interesting element to it. Yeah, it's definitely one variable that you can take out of the equation whenever you're you're eyeing up potential riders, because at the end of the day, front to back of the grid, there's not really too much difference talent wise, but it comes down to applying that talent, just like what we were talking about earlier on, and it comes down to how smart you are and how 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 much of that talent you're able to use. And once you've once you've proved that you're determined that you're doing everything you can to be out there at least it's one variable that a team boss can tick off the box Absolutely. and that's why both of those guys are factory riders this year with honda and yamaha yeah yeah uh speaking of another factory did you get a chance to talk to leon camier too much i was talking to leon at the start of the test and uh, he was just going through the different program that they had for mv leon was the first rider out on the first day because I think they were working through a new clutch and different things like that just to to get some data on it and uh, that's what he was out and they were doing a lot of work in the electronics package and I know from talking to him over the winter at uh, things like Motorcycle Live and a couple of different times that, that I bumped into him he was saying that the electronics package was the the main thing that they wanted to work on and just being able to learn how to get more out of the MV and uh, they, they seem to have done that you know he looked he looked good on the bike he looked more confident than what we saw at times last year. And I think he's he's now he's now riding at a really high level. And it's just a case of can they get enough out of the MV. And maybe losing Melandri from the team could, could help him. Because again, just like what we were talking about with test riders, Marco is so talented, but he always wants a bike in a really specific way. Right. And that can be detrimental. Whenever you're a one rider team in, in the form of MV with Camier, Maybe just having Camier as your tester is what you need. I think maybe if Marco was still there, that would be really difficult to be able to actually get a, a unified direction on the bike. If they had a two-rider team, different story. But whenever you've only got one rider, it's best probably just to leave your testing with him. And Leon's always hungry to go test and he's always hungry to be on his bike. So it should work out pretty well for MV. I don't think you can pick two riders that are more dichotomous than Leon Camier and Marco Melandri. Um, you know, we, we already sung the praises of Leon's ability to to develop a, a machine or, or, or to be a data acquisition unit, as, as the, the guys were calling him. And I think you look at Marco, who's incredibly talented. I don't want to take anything away from it. But he, he's very much, if the bike's not 100% his way, he just... He just doesn't, he just doesn't perform. And I think some of that is, is, uh, maybe his inability to ride around the problems that he's facing. And I think the other part of that too is there's a mental of, well, the bike's shit, so I'm not going to give my best. And that's probably maybe an unfair thing to say, to say about a rider, because I think they're all competitive at the end of the day. But, you know, you look at what was going on in the Aprilia garage and MotoGP. He didn't even make it through the whole season before they were finally like, you know what? If that's just how you're going to be about it, maybe it's best we both part ways. Yeah, and if you were to look at 2014, which was probably the main reason why last year at the Aprilia MotoGP team it didn't work out, um, Marco was able to show he could win a world championship again, and he was really strong in the second half of the year, pretty much unbeatable. I think he had double wins at Sepang, uh, double wins at Jerez, double wins at another round as well, and uh, gifted a win to Gintoli in France, won the other race. He was really, really strong, and whenever he was, he was effectively told, you know, you're a MotoGP rider, he bucked about it, and he, he, he wanted to win another world championship. He, want, he knew he wouldn't get that in, in GP, 
and he wanted to win a World Superbike Championship. So it's impossible to look at what he did last year and not think it was just, I'm cashing my paycheck. If you're not happy, pay me off. And that's that's what happened at the end of the day. He's still a, he's still a top line rider. If he was if he was in World Superbikes, he put him down as a championship favorite. But the thing with it is, for Marco, everything needs to be right, and you'll always see it that until everything's right, he'll be he could finish seventh. Once everything's right, you're guaranteed wins, and that's where you know finding a place for him and finding a team that wants him. There'll always be teams that will want a rider that can win races but dealing with the rest of it can be a bit of an issue for them yeah yeah when i when i heard the links between um mv augusta and marco melandre it sounded like like such um for lack of a better word uh, an italian way of thinking like oh we got this fantastic italian rider we'll put him on this you know italian uh historic you know iconic rand and you know we'll go race in world superbike which used to be very italian centric and you know won't this be great and the reality, like for me, I was always thinking like, oh, what a horrible rider to put on that bike. Because it's just, it's just not, I just don't see it working out. Uh, you know, you're putting, putting Leon on it, like, yeah, that makes sense. You need to develop this platform. You need to, to make progress as a team. You're not going to probably be fighting for, for too many podium, podiums in a season, but you might have your, you might have your good day where you get something and, you know, you'll develop that into, into something more as, as the years go on. But with Marco, I sit there just like, you're going to pay probably top level money for it. And you're not going to get anything out of it. And you're not going to be able to develop your machine. You're not going to be able to, to, to build more momentum for next year. You're just going to have someone in your pit box who's not happy, who's probably detracting from what's going on on the other side of the pit box. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. For for a team, you're looking for as few distractions as possible, especially if you're someone like MV. You're not going to win races, so you need to just be able to develop the package. And is that really an environment that Melandry has shown that he can operate well in? I haven't seen it too often. No, neither have I. I do know, you know, that that bike is so long in the tooth and and um, beautiful, beautiful machine, but uh, desperate need of of a technical overhaul and and a new generation. I, I thought for sure we were going to see a new F4 at Eichma uh, uh, last November, and uh, I'm still expecting to see um, maybe another one uh, later, uh, maybe this year, hopefully, because. They, they, they need that new platform. The platform's, it's, it's long the tooth. It needs to be taken to the next level. And I think actually the way the World Superbike rules are set up now, uh, with the homologation numbers being dropped and, um, the restrictions on the engine, I think plays really well into MV Augusta's hands of making, you know, limited edition bespoke models that they sell for, well, I think what's the price cap? 45,000 euro or something yeah, like that. Something like that. So, you know, that's, that's kind of in their wheelhouse of, of price ranges to, to sell ultra premium. Uh, super bikes and um hopefully they, they they've got something cooking in uh in Varese right now for that for that very purpose because it's i think they're being held back a lot by their packages as much development progress as they're making on it i think they're where it's going to peter out at a point that still doesn't leave them in, in where they want to be in the competition yeah and definitely for in terms of that if you look at uh, how the championship is going to go you're always going to see a Penegali or you're always going to see even the the R1M now you're you're going to see the new the new Fireblade will be an SP something or other and and it's going to be going down that path where basically you're going to have a world superbike for the road and it just is the only way to make a competitive uh, competitive package because it's easy to look at a superbike and think like oh yeah that's pretty much the same as what i'm i'm riding down the shops but when you walk down the pit lane and you see some of the trick bits on those bikes like, they're full factory oh you think they're full factory? i mean i think the um the little headlight decals that really makes it that really helps me tie to what they're racing on the track is exactly what i'm riding on the road that doesn't do it for you no not so much um, <laughs> um no i think you're absolutely right for me I'm, I, I'm i'm super excited about it i'm super i think it's the smartest thing they could do for the rules and i think it's another one of those things that's going to get people excited about um world superbike racing because there is going to be yeah you can buy that bike it's available on the street there's still like this is still production racing but you're going to start seeing some really trick machines come out of the oems so I'm, I'm really curious to see what honda brings for the 2017 cbr 1000 because it's going to be sick i bet yeah and i'm really keen to see what yamaha do with the r1 this year because when you look at the amount of 
bits that they were testing this week. I think uh, Gintoli had a new swing arm. He was moving his body position around the probably have different tank now and things like that. You know, I think we saw the tank and it was, it, it, I think it was on the Yamaha that yeah. it, it looked like it was uh, being just shaped around the rider again. And you know, they've got loads of different bits that just uh, separated from the stock bike separated from the bikes we saw in BSB and the German Championship in Moto America. And I think they're really showing exactly what we can expect from World Superbikes over the next few years. Yeah, I think I should. I think I got a photo of the tank. I'll try and put it up on the Facebook and Twitter pages because uh, you can you can see you can see where it's been welded. You can see where it's been shaped with a grinder and they're, they're working on figuring out how to make that that package uh, into what it needs to be. In fact, that's I want to finish strong and talk about Pata Yamaha for, for, for the podcast today because for me, it's really exciting to see Yamaha back in the World Superbike paddock. And not only that, but to have really good riders. You have a former World Superbike champion in Silvan Guintoli. You have Alex Lowe's, who's no slouch on a motorcycle himself either. And um, Crescent Racing, managing that team, Paul Denny and his crew. I mean, I, they definitely punched above their weight class when they had the Suzuki as their platform. Now you've got a, a brand new platform that won the championship in the USA, won the championship in uh, Great Britain. It's it's looking like it's going to be really honed for for this season. What are your thoughts? I think they look like they've already gotten an, an, an understanding of the bike. They're already really aggressively trying to develop the bike try to build their understanding of it. We saw the amount of work that Gintoli was doing, as I said, on those different parts. Alex was spending time just trying to understand the engine and the electronics because the one thing that we don't really know about the R1 at this point is how strong it is top end wise because in British British championships, there's not too many times where you're really stretching the legs of the bike. It's mostly about low end grunt, the German championship. Moto America, we didn't really see it. And I think once we get now to Grand Prix level tracks, um, it's going to be interesting just to see how they actually perform. Absolutely. I, I, I think that's spot on because in Moto America, there's such a disparity between what Yamaha is bringing to the table and what the other teams are bringing to the table. I don't think you make that compar- comparison. Yeah, we go to Coda. Yeah, we go to some of these horsepower tracks. But when you're spending out, or I should say, when you're out spending the nearest team five to one, it's not it's not apples to apples when you're making that comparison. Yeah, Hayden was on a really old Jexer and you're up against a brand new Yamaha. It wasn't it wasn't a valid comparison. And that's why it's going to be interesting this year. You know, Josh Brooks was talking about it and he said that uh, he still stands by his comments that while the R1 was a really good bike and still something he, he holds close to his heart, he doesn't think it would be a competitive package on the world scene at the moment, at least in the in the form that they had it at uh, at BSB level. Yeah, I think that'll be hard because there is there is such a difficulty as a manufacturer coming in to especially World Superbike uh, the first year with a new package because I don't think people realize like there's a lot of development that has to go into the racing package and and that's been the criticism of of Superbike in the past because the machines were so different from what was being produced for the cons- for the consumer that it wasn't really like oh yeah well if it's a good consumer bike it'll be a good race back. No, that's not really the case. I mean, if, if anything, uh, the Hondas and the Suzuki's have proven that like we, you know, racing platforms that are almost eight years old can be competitive because they're eight years old. They have had eight years of development to, to extract every 10th of a second out of that engine, every 10th of a second out of that chassis and electronics and the suspension and everything that goes into it. Whereas Yamaha, They've had the benefit of going racing in BSB. They've had the benefit of going racing in Moto American. So they've gotten a lot of that data. They've taken that very big first step. But they still have to take a lot of incremental steps to, to perfect the, uh, the YZF-R1, uh, into a, a truly potent weapon. Uh, I think it, I think, I don't know if out of the box they're really going to be, uh, the leaders of the championship. But again, like I think, after that mid-season point, we could definitely see them starting to step it up and, and be serious. I mean, do, do, do you fancy Sylvan Guntoli's odds pretty well from winning the championship, or where do you put him? To be honest, I put Alex ahead of him. Would you really? Yeah. Okay, interesting. I think Alex. Alex I mean, what, what country are you from? I'm from Ireland. So okay, nothing yeah, about nationalities. Sure. Um, I I think um, Alex. He's still recovering from from his injury, but from the first test, he looked really comfortable on that bike, and and this week. It, it just sounds trackside that Sylvan is just relying more on the electronics. And that's fair enough, like they're there to be used. But I think as the season progresses, just being that little bit uh, 
that little bit smoother with the with the bike could actually help Alex. And it's it's strange because you'd look at their riding styles and you'd think that Alex is probably more aggressive than Sylvan, but he just wasn't using as much of the uh, the electronics, and that could that could that could be key for them through the season. Now, admittedly. Sylvan could have been working on specific strategies for the electronics. We don't really know that yet. So it'll take a few races, but uh, yeah, I think Al's going to win races this year. He's a former British champion. We know he's good on the superbike. He's spent two years riding around on a GSX-R1000, so he knows the tracks, he knows the championship, he knows the riders, and I think he's he's primed to have a really strong year. I think time will tell on that one. I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with anything you say, but I think time will tell. It's one of those things that you know, comes right back to that that um that idea that maybe his talent's been hiding behind other issues and now he's on a factory full factory team we should say uh on a on a very potent platform that it's only going to get better as time goes on so uh, i would definitely want to be in his shoes and some than say some others yeah it's it's going to be a good year i think it's it's a it's a strange year as well though because if you look at uh, like just what you were saying about suzuki there's you've got a new bike coming in first 2017 it just it seems that it's a, it's a missed opportunity for a team looking to make that next step and become a factory outfit yeah yeah i think i think that's very interesting and i think maybe um you know when we look at the fact that we have two bmw teams and they're both sharing support from DM, from bmw Motorrad, uh i think there's just by nature there's something in that relationship that's going to have some some tension i can't i know there's uh, a lot of things in place to make sure that they get equal treatment but you, you know, like I think you ask any parent, like they've got they've got one kid they like a little bit more. Like like when your parents sit down, they're like, oh, we love Susie a lot more than Stephen. Oh, like we never they never say it to your face, but you know, no, if there's, no, no, if there's a fire, you know, they're they're grabbing Susie before they grab you. It's uh, it's 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 Susie's birthday, not my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but it, it is interesting because because my understanding of the Suzuki is uh, the race team should have uh, the new GXR uh, one thousand in their possession now to start private testing and we'll see it uh released to the public uh mid year 2016 so it, yeah it's a 2017 model but we're going to see that in uh, people's hands very very soon here and um you're going to see it at the suzuki eight hours as well like it, it, it is going to be ready it's just a case of you needed to make a commitment to say we're going to run the old bike officially in the championship this year and then we've got the new bike next year yeah yeah it's curious to me i, I can't imagine uh, that package not being uh, potent uh, to keep using that word, but but I feel like it's too lurid of a machine for for someone not to step up and say like, yeah, I want to race that for 2017. I'm I'm surprised like you, like I'm surprised there's no one here this year, but you gotta imagine they're gonna make a re-entry into 2017 with, with that bike. Yeah, for sure. Like the 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 Suzuki has always been a bike to have on the on the Superbike Championships, and it's gonna be the case next year as well. But no team was just willing to take that chance on it this year, and that's a shame. It really is, and, and like I was telling a buddy of mine, like have you ever ridden a bad a bad Jixer? You know, like they just don't exist. Like you know that bike's going to be good out of the box. You know that bike's going to be something that can be developed into a race winner. So you know, find a top tier rider, find a top tier team, and let's go racing with it. Well, Steve, I, I think I've run out of things to talk about. You got anything? No, I think it's time just to go get some lunch, JB. Great. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Again, I want to throw down that gauntlet to you listeners uh, who are loving this show, addicted to the show, leaving us comments about how much you love the show. Please, 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 please get on iTunes and give us a little rating. Uh, it greatly helps uh, other listeners find the show when they go into iTunes' crazy search algorithm, which makes no sense whatsoever. But the more the show gets rated, the easier uh, it pops up, the higher it pops up on the uh, search results. Obviously, we're looking for some five-star reviews, but we'll take your constructive criticism too because we love you that much and we're always trying to improve the show. So uh, I think from Stephen and I, uh, thank you for listening and have a good day. Kickstands up. That's the one, JB. The Paddock Pass podcast. If you don't recognize my voice, that's because I'm not David Emmett. In fact, I'm Jensen Beeler from Asphalt and Rubber and the Two Enthusiasts podcast. And with me today is... Steve English. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve English GP. I totally fucked up on the... Yeah, I love it, Jay. <laughs> Nuts. <laughs> Oh, so good. I was so proud that I that I pronounced the Paddock Pass podcast right. Just Paddock like Pass in podcast. your face, Emmett. Boom. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass, Pass podcast. podcast. <laughs>
Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. How do I want to do that?